Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello. Risk enablement in dementia care is a balancing act. We all want to keep our loved ones safe, but this can lead to denying a person the right to choice and self-expression. At the heart of it, it is supporting an individual living with dementia to take positive risks within their daily lives to keep purpose and meaning in their lives. We will be discussing two facets of risk enablement in both NHS and social care settings with my two guests today. Kellen Lee is a senior research assistant and final year PhD student at the University of Southampton. And Pippa Collins is a clinical doctoral research fellow and advanced clinical practitioner also at the University of Southampton. Welcome to you both. We're going to talk about risk enablement, which is quite a broad topic. So maybe, Kellen, you can talk a little bit about what your PhD topic is. I know you're looking at functional objects and their importance in maintaining and supporting the cultivation of identity. Yes. So um, so my background is psychology and I look at, um, or I'm interested in what people do, why people do things and the conditions that cause certain things to take place. Um, my interest in, in dementia in relation to risk was um, in relation to a care home they seem to be very passive places. So care staff tend to do everything for people. Um, residents tend to um, be looked after. So what I wanted to look at was how people can be enabled, how people can be empowered, what kinds of risks are suitable for care home life. Um, so the PhD idea came from... Um, I'd, I'd done some work in a care home and it was the whole... Loads of people sat around a room and a TV on in the corner and they would wait until it was lunchtime to be moved to the dinner table or until an organised activity um, was presented to them and then it would be again moved to where that took place. Um, and I wanted to kind of know why they weren't involved in the everyday tasks. So if this is home, why aren't they washing up? Why aren't they making a cup of tea? Why aren't they polishing, doing some hoovering, you know, just ha making a, a, that property home. And an, another reason why I wanted to look at it was I, I for the last seven years, I've been um, a, a researcher in dementia. So I took part in two um, projects which looked at creative arts. And the idea that people could paint, um, you know, and exhibit paintings... The carers and relatives and spouses seemed to think that that was out of reach, that it would it would be too much. Um, but giving these people these objects and enabling them to take part in a in a in a an adult education art class, they achieved some amazing things. And what I saw was that the way that people viewed that person started to change. They started to see them as capable, as opposed to focusing on what they can't do. And, and so that was separate to your functional work in the care home, or have you managed to combine it, it the kind creative of and the functional? It kind of combines all of it because it's looking at what, what are meaningful tasks for people to do. So rather than concentrating on activities or this organised fun, which is, which is important... Does that align with what somebody wants to do? Is that Does that demonstrate their identity? So when I was developing my research question, I had a conversation with a woman whose mum had gone into a care home and both the mum and daughter didn't want them. Mum didn't want to be in the care home. Daughter didn't want mum in the care home. And she'd visit her mum frequently. And on this one occasion, um, she came out and she felt good and usually she didn't. 
So I, I asked her why, and she said, well, mum, apparently mum likes it when I take in a flask. So I said, so what is it about the flask? And she said, well, I don't know. So I said, well, would you buy mum a flask to have in the care home? So she said, well, what would be the point? She has dementia, she'll forget to drink the tea. So I said, well, perhaps it's less about the tea and more about this ordinary object. At the time that you have it, when you come in, she can pour you a cup of tea, she can be the host, Mm. something that she would have done at home. And that's not something that's readily available for a person living in a care home. I guess it's also control, isn't it? She can control that situation a bit more. She has the, not the power, that's... taking it too far but like you say a host so she's the one that's dictating what's happening then she she can make decisions yeah. as to when they have tea mm-hmm. she can pour the tea like you say she has the choice yeah and active, she has control o- over that situation at that time mm-hmm. um again which is something that isn't readily available to people that live in care homes mm. okay um pippa um you're looking at immobility, which we know is a common challenge for people with dementia, particularly whilst they are inpatients in an acute hospital. So maybe you could talk a bit about what your work? Well, my background is as a physiotherapist, so I'm acutely aware that within an acute hospital, people who are older, and particularly people who have dementia, are not enabled to move around. We very much passively position our patients. As soon as somebody comes in through the door of our hospitals, they are a person becomes a patient. Mm-hmm. And this patient is placed upon a trolley in a- A&E, moved on the trolley towards a bed in the AMU, moved from the bed in the AMU up to a ward, moved on their bed within the ward. Um, and yet this immobile person whose mobility is so restricted is, in, is juxtapositioned by this incredible mobility of the hospital. So the hospital relies on bed flow, so movement is intrinsic to the operation of a big acute hospital. We have the hyper-busy, hyper-empowered, busy professional juxtapositioned against the immobile person who's now become a patient. And we have an institution that relies on the movement of these patients through the hospital, and yet the patient has no control of that movement. So again, it goes back to the control issue. The person who has a dementia has no control And there is increasing research evidence now to show that pretty much anything that a person does who has dementia is deemed as risky and to be avoided. So we use pejorative terms like wandering rather than somebody who likes to walk around or walking with purpose because I've never met a person with dementia who's not got a purpose to their walking. If somebody repeatedly tries to stand up, they're told to sit down, Mrs Jones, sit down because it's seen as a risky activity. So... Again, under the label of risk and uh, the lid of risk, risk enablement that our DTC has been looking at, I really, really wanted to explore this um, dynamic of the, the mobility immobility dynamic of a person who has a dementia within this very busy, frenetic environment. You're obviously working in quite different settings. We've got care home yeah, and very NHS. Um, this is something that comes up a lot is the... Um, reluctance or acceptance of staff to help you with your aims and your research could you talk a bit about sort of challenges challenges you've had or how accepting have people been when you've come in and said well if I start (laughs) Mm -hmm. and say that I couldn't have had more help I my colleagues and the people I've worked with I have been incredibly enthusiastic about my research and incredibly helpful I definitely think it helps that I am 
part of the world. Also, although I don't work entirely on the acute medical unit anymore, I am known down there. Mm. People are very interested in what I'm doing and, and honestly could not have been more helpful. But I, I do believe that's because I'm a, a known insider, if you like. I think that that gives me an access to people who are in a very, very, very vulnerable time. Mm. They're either in social or physical crisis when they're on, a, on an acute medical unit. Um, and I don't know if I'd have got such access if I hadn't been known and trusted within my world. Mm. And how have you found it, Kelly? Um, I think for me, when I set out on this care home study, I, I was told repeatedly it will be difficult to mm. recruit. Um, but... I had I, I did I gave a presentation at a dementia awareness uh, meeting and I I was approached by a local authority adult services service manager who said we want you to do your research in our homes. Okay. So for me, I didn't face that barrier. However, I did face barriers once I was in the homes. So for example, I think I think as researchers and and people that work in this field, we all think that research is a good idea. Change is a good idea. For the people on the ground, change isn't always a good idea because they're the ones that have to implement it. And if you're in the NHS, you will live in a constant world of yeah. change. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I think, particularly for social care, um, so every care home is different as well. There are different dynamics that are going on within. Um, one care home, they, opened, they you know, welcomed me with open arms. Another care home, they were quite suspicious of me. Some staff openly would leave the room if I went in. Other staff would be um, quite happy to chat at length. So I think it, it, it was about building those relationships and trying to break those barriers. But I think as a researcher, it's also understanding that just because management want the research to take place and they want some answers that has an impact on the people that are working in there mm. and they're not they're not necessarily the ones that have agreed to have the research take place but they're expected to be participants mm. and i think that's something that you have to kind of negotiate and be sensitive to yeah um coming back a little bit to what you were saying about um having functional objects in the care home setting so you said about doing the washing up I mean, is that even feasible in a care home? Could you set it up that they help lay the table or, you know, people in the care home, you know, I don't know what else, put out the bins, sort out the recycling? I, I was just thinking of the boring tasks they do at home. But is, is that feasible in a care home? So the majority of research so far has concentrated on um, objects as more of as, as comforters, particularly in relation to dementia and, and, and ageing. So researchers looked at, um, you know, the, the, the objects that make a room look familiar, you know, the, the cover, the, you know, a, a small piece of furniture, um, pictures, photographs, things like that. The functional objects, as we're talking about, if I make clear what I mean by the functional objects... Yep. Um, <laughs> Because obviously any object has a function. Um, but if we look at things like a kettle, we we can take action. So I don't have to wait for the 11 o'clock trolley to come round. I can make my own cup of tea when I want my own cup of tea the way I like my cup of tea. I could have it in my own cup rather than the care home cup that mm. everyone else has used. And, and I might have a, a cup that I have. I know I have a cup that I have for tea and a cup that I have for coffee. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it makes no difference, but for some reason to me it does. So the, the, these are the objects that I'm talking about within the home. A hoover, you know, a duster, having these things that you have access to to carry out a task. So in relation to care homes... 
they have staff employed to do those things. Mm. So I think because staff are employed to do them, that creates a barrier. Because if I allow you to do it, then what am I doing? Do I look like I'm not doing my job? Am I then in, in, in a difficult position? Because I have to then, you know, I could be questioned about what it is I'm doing and what I'm not doing. Or equally, if somebody has an accident, then is that my fault? So what I will do is I won't allow you to use things because every every object is seen as a potential risk. Well, I was going to say the kettle one, obviously, boiling water, that's not a, you know, you immediately think risk, don't you? Yeah. But I guess you have to balance the 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 change to their lifestyle, or not the change to their lifestyle, but the benefit to their lifestyle. You see, it's interesting that you say you look at a kettle and you immediately see risk. I mean, why is that? Because... Because I have lady, a two-year-old at home. <laughs> but this lady will have been living in her own home for the last yeah. 70 years and making cups of tea, you know, too mm. too many to ever count. I guess and that's... because the... she's changed her environment, mm. that simple task of making a cup of tea is suddenly deemed too risky for her. Yeah. And I think what Kellen is perhaps saying is an exploration of where does that mindset of the instant perception of risk come from in what is, in effect, a normal household object. Yeah. I guess you have to remember that there are individuals coming with a background of managing their own risk every day. Mm. Um, I think you also have to understand, you know, if we're going to deliver true person-centred care, that means that the care is individual. Mm. It means if, if it's true person-centred care, we've listened to that individual and we're working with that individual in order to fulfil their needs and make sure that their needs are met. So a person coming into a care home... We need to look at why they're in the care home. You know, what were they managing well at home? What what are the reasons for them coming in? Because they, they could have come in because they've had a couple of falls. That may have nothing to do with them being able to use a kettle, with mm. them being able to make their own lunch, with them being able to carry out household chores that are as research says, are important to, to maintain identity, to mm. keep those routines and rituals going that you've developed over a lifetime. However, if I remove all the objects... So, so for example, today you've probably used over 10 objects in order to, to, to get ready this morning, to make yourself feel like yourself, to come out, to do what you need to do. So if you imagine if I take all of those objects away from you, because potentially you could hurt yourself with one of them... Where does that leave you? On a production line. <laughs> and where's your identity? Because I've just stripped it away because I won't allow you to do the things mm. that make you you. Um, so it, when we're looking at risk, it's very easy to say that there is a risk involved. There may well be a risk involved, but we need to look at the bigger picture and say, well, let's do a risk assessment. Well, in your care planning, let's introduce functional objects into that care planning. Let me look at what you were doing well at home or even not particularly well, but what you were able to do at home. And let's see how we can incorporate that into your care plan so that you maintain those routines and rituals that will help you settle in this new context and this new environment. Mm -hmm. Sort of mixing your kettle and your flask story a little bit, I guess you could say the kettle may be too risky for someone, but a flask is a good intermediate between having the cup of tea totally made for you but, you know, it takes out the element of pouring boiling water everywhere, a flask is... But it still gives you some control, so I guess it's finding where the person sits in that. I think it, it, it provides that compromise, um, but equally, this isn't this hasn't been looked at. So what, mm, what I found okay. with, with the research is people just... 
objects are seen as materialistic. What we need are human-human interactions. We need love. We need care. We need all of those things. Yes, we do. And I'm not taking that away from um, the research that's been done. Of course we do. But what has been excluded or overlooked is, is the need for, you know, how we interact with our material world as well and what that brings to our lives and also how our relationships can develop with each other. So, for example, if you see me doing things with things, maybe to you I become more capable. Hmm. Maybe you then see me slightly differently. Maybe you allow me to do more for myself because I can demonstrate to you what I can do. However, if you haven't given me that chance and removed all the objects in the first place, you are positioning me as incapable of using anything. So there, there is nowhere to go from there. Mm. But it, it's not... It, it's not the fault of people in care homes. It's just because functional objects haven't been looked at because we tend to... If someone comes into a care home, we care for you. Mm. We don't look at people, particularly older people, as being active. Yeah. I guess this links a little bit to something you wrote in your um, bio, Pippa, about how systems have been designed without their users in mind. So you have a whole setup because it worked for, in your case, in a clinical setting, nurses, doctors, physios, moving people around. But that system doesn't necessarily work for the patient. So is that what you've seen? Yes, I think that's a really interesting point and something that I've been, been really passionate about, which is why is it that the systems have been set up by people like myself and not set up by the people who are the main users? And the main the main occupiers of hospital beds now are people who are complex, tend to be older and may or may not have a cognitive problem. And looking at the research, you can recognise that there's an enormous amount of work that's been done about experiences of caregivers and experiences of staff and very, very little that directly gets the perceptions of people who actually have a dementia. Which always seems mad when you say it like that. Yeah, but there really isn't anything. So one of the things that I've done for my PhD is to try and work out a way where you can include people who've got a dementia, which is in a way that, that's, that enables them to take part and express their point of view or say something that's important to them. When I look at research, there's been a lot of semi-structured interviews and there's quite a bit of observation um, of people with dementia. Now, semi-structured interviews or any form of questioning is really threatening for someone whose recall on demand is limited. Mm. There's been some research about asking people what their experiences of hospitalisation was after they've got home, but again, a non-contextual conversation is hard for somebody whose recall is limited. So I thought about this a lot and I spoke to lots of people who have dementia and I spoke to a lot of people who um, look after people or are related to people with dementia and I decided that I would use a narrative inquiry approach and video people. And instead of going into the acute medical unit and asking people what it's like to be there and have they moved around, because I know if I ask them that, I can ask them that clinically and I know they will say it's fine, everybody's very nice, I decided that I would just ask people if they would mind having a conversation with me. And so my research is videos of people having a conversation about what's important to them at the time. And very often it's not anything to do with the hospital environment. It's things that talk about them as a person, who they are, where they come from. What it, it's, They tell me about things that create a person for them to be recognised by mm. because they have been take, their clothes will have been taken off, they'll be in a hospital gown, they'll either be in bed or beside their bed. 
that have virtually no personal belongings. Some people come in with a few, but a lot of people have no personal belongings mm -hmm. at all. And I've been really lucky that people have wanted to take part. And because I'm videoing, it means I can, can capture embodied language as well as verbal language. Because, again, within the hospital environment, within all care environments, really, we rely on people telling a structured time, a temporal story, where you've got a beginning, a middle and an end. And throughout the whole of healthcare, you're expected to tell your story like that. Mm. So someone who can't tell their story like that, who jumps around at different topics and different times and different people, or perhaps doesn't use words, they're not listened to. They have a label slapped on their head that says confused and, and nobody listens. And to me, that's the nub of why we've created our systems to not suit the main users. We have not listened to people. We don't give them time. In a way, it's the flip of the, the um, campaign to get doctors to introduce themselves to patients because patients felt you know, uh, detached from them, so they say, hi, my name is. In a way, this is a flip of that. You're trying to get the patient to look like an individual to the doctor yes, again. absolutely. I mean, what you have to bear in mind that I've, I've been videoing people within the first 48 hours of arriving in the hospital. They're all in um, a social or medical crisis, mm. and none of them will have been asked questions by less than 24 different people. 24 wow. different people. Now, I know that if I'm on the phone to talk, talk, and I have to tell my story to one more person, and it'll, that'll probably be the third, I want to reach <laughs> down the phone and throttle them. If, if, as happens during my research, a man starts to hit somebody, mm. he's labelled as aggressive, nobody actually understands that this is a man who's probably just had the 25th person ask him exactly the same thing in an environment that's so noisy that it's really hard to hear yourself mm -hmm. think, let alone what someone's saying to you. And they're very, very frustrated. Yeah. So do you ever do any work in social um, care homes? You, or are you purely clinical? At the moment, I'm purely in the acute hospital. I have worked in the community before, so I have mm. been into many care homes as in my clinical role, but researcher-wise, I've researched in the acute hospital. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> something we love talking about in this, this podcast series is ethics and consent. And obviously you're talking to a lot of patients. You said you videoed them. How did you go about getting... Well, I, I, another thing I think that's really interesting is I call it the exclusionary ethics of research. <laughs> so the ethical process is designed really to exclude people who've got a dementia. And mm. when you read research articles, very often people will be excluded because they score a particular number on a, on a standardised scale or they lack capacity, whatever that might mean, to decide. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to people with dementia and... This is before I did my project, and it's completely apparent to me that if someone wants to have a conversation with me, they can say yes or no. Mm. I think our process of consent has been designed for biomedical trials where you might be taking medication, but really mm. for a qualitative research such as mine, I'm offering to use a tablet to video somebody. I chose the tablet so that I can... Sh I show pictures of me and my family and I have pictures of my m conversations with my mum mm. because I think I need to give something of myself if I'm asking something back. It's got quite a good resolution, so most people can, uh, can more or less make out their video. Um, and I haven't found anybody yet who can't say yes or no that they whether they want to take part. 
And then I've split my consent into two processes. So during the time we have our conversation together, we spend a bit of time talking and interacting. I think during that time I can get a pretty good understanding if someone really understands that I'm going to be using this for research and education. And if it seems that someone really doesn't understand that non-contextual concept, then I will go to a personal consultee. So I would ask a, a relative... Mm-hmm. if it's okay to use the data. And actually, I've only had to ask two relatives and they've both been very happy for the data to be used for education and research. Okay. And even people I've met with very severe dementia who, when they've been approached by one of my colleagues, because I don't make the first approach, will make an indication like um, maybe just shutting their eyes and turning away to indicate that they're really not interested in mm. a conversation at, at that point. Okay. So I think we... we disempower people even at the level of qualitative research by saying you can't you haven't got the capacity to give consent well i'm sorry i think most people have the capacity to Mm -hmm. give consent whether the video because they are very personal and recognizable should be released Mm. onto into the public i think is so non-contextual that that's another issue that that has that has to be separated out and the other thing is all these this paperwork I haven't yet met somebody who has a dementia who can read pages and pages. Yeah. And so my, my consent is all verbal. And it's very contextual because I have it all on my tablet so we can see what we're going to be doing. Mm. And I document in my field notes consent and make sure that they're still happy for it to continue. And then at the end we look at the video and if they don't want to keep it, then we go delete and it goes. And if they do want to keep it, then it's kept. So they're part of the whole process. It's yeah. all very visual. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I hope so. <laughs> So we're coming near to the end now. So is there any final thoughts or anything else you'd like to say that you'd like our listeners to know about your research or, like, your important take-home messages? Um, I, if possible, just a few of the research findings that, yeah, go that for I it. have. Um, so it's also, I think, important to, to, to say that I took a citizenship approach to the research and I believed because uh, I wanted it to be an active, you know, using functional objects, people being active, taking action, having self-determination, choice control, those kinds of things. Um, I, I took a citizenship approach. But when looking at citizenship, it was kind of like, well, what, what is citizenship in practice? What does it look like? How would I know whether it's there or not? Um, so I tested the material lens to see whether that would be useful in saying this is what citizenship looks like and this is what it doesn't look like. So within, within my findings, I found that people coming from hospital um, straight to a care home, often there was a best interest decision that was made. So somebody with dementia maybe had had a fall at home, gone into hospital, disorientated, a decision was made, they can't return home, straight to a care home. Mm. They didn't get to choose the care home. They didn't have any say in in going into the care home. Um, And equally, they didn't have any opportunities to organise the belongings that they took in. So they literally hospital to care home? Yep. Straight yeah. to care home. There's, there's, and, and, you know, from a psychological perspective, you know, you haven't had the time to adapt or to mm. come to terms with what's happened. And, and the, the organising your, your personal possessions can then um, enable you to kind of come to terms that you can, you know, give certain objects away, keep certain things. Um, but this was continued throughout. So once a person was resident in a care home, they also didn't have opportunities to return home to collect belongings. So they could make a request that they would like something, but they had no control at all over wow. their contents of their home. Um 
and that was with every single participant that I worked with. But there was this idea of risk again. It, rather than it being risk in relation to risk of harm, it was seen as, well, if, I, if we allow them the opportunity to go home, there's a risk they won't want to come back. So the risk was was different in that in that context. Was How, there also an emotional risk somehow? You know, this like you say, best interests. So you're saying we don't want to upset you by letting you go home because this isn't your home anymore. So yeah. we're just going to put you in the new place, and that will be better for you. So not really talking through it. I'm the not, emotional side of it. I'm not entirely sure the reasoning behind it because I didn't look into that. That wasn't yeah. that kind of wasn't part of of the project. But I, I was acutely aware that you couldn't. The circumstances by which somebody had moved into a care home were equally important to understand how the decision making took place. And it seemed that people that had a best interest decision, people with dementia, um, then it set a trajectory of excluding them from decision making because mm. they lacked capacity. Well, in so what, the bar was set, basically. Yeah, yeah. So they they sort of walk into the care home on the threshold that I can't make decisions, mm. so therefore we'll make all the decisions for you. Um, there was also the access to objects. Um, there was this idea that care homes would say, you can bring in whatever you like. However, as soon as I started asking questions about what can some... Can I bring in a hairdryer? No, you can't bring in a hairdryer. Can I bring in hair straighteners? No, you can't, because they're seen as a risk. So mm. every functional object by care home staff was seen as hazardous or risky. Um, the objects, um, as they were, were viewed as risky, um, and but it was based on a lack of evidence. There was no risk assessment that took place and it was just somebody somewhere had done something at some point mm. and that's kind of what the risk was based upon. It was some anecdotal or something that maybe happened five years ago but it's still playing out in every day. Um, and there was also this sense of objects would go missing because people have dementia, they won't remember where they've put things, they will take other people's things, they will um, hoard things. But what I found was that care staff were removing things from people's rooms because they thought they were risky, but oh. not telling the person that they'd removed them. So the person was wondering, where are my things, where are my things, and not being told. Um, so when I saw somebody walking around with her radio under her arm and people going, oh, bless, look, it's her dementia. No, it isn't. It's because she thinks if she leaves it in her room, it's going to go missing because her clothes go missing every night. Mm. And they go missing every night because they've taken them to the laundry, but they're not telling her that they're taking them to the laundry. So she set her clothes out for the next day and wakes up in the morning and her clothes have disappeared. So you can just imagine how this context is impacting on dementia and particularly how people view dementia because she's confused. Well, mm. She's confused because of the context of this environment. Um, so the material citizenship, I think what this does is it shows whether it's absent or present in relation to the object. So it puts the person in a more powerful position, the person with dementia. So if somebody can't have that hairdryer, well, why not? How have you come to that decision? Mm. How have you made that conclusion? Have you done a risk assessment? Has anything been done? Because if, if you haven't, it has to be a yes. Yeah. You know, it kind of should be an opt-in, opt-out. So if that person wants these functional objects to use every day, if you can't give an evidence-based... Um, 
explanation as to why they can't have it, then surely they have to have it. And it's um, there was an amendment made to the Human Rights 1998 in December of last year, which says that um, it contravenes a person's human right if they can't enjoy their own objects. So I think using <coughs> that, taking the human right, taking the citizenship approach and having these objects which you can see, you can observe and you can question with, which also includes people with dementia because you can see them using them or not, it places people with dementia on a much stronger footing. Mm. It, it it empowers them. Um, and I think it evidently could, um, well, in the long term, could possibly make care better. Mm. Oh. Well, thank you both so much. This has been really interesting. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank yeah, um, you. Great. Yeah. Thank you. And if you have anything to add on this topic or you would like to join us for a podcasting podcast recording yourself please do post your comments on our website or drop us a line on twitter using hashtag ecrdementia subscribe to this podcast through soundcloud and itunes thank you this was a podcast brought to you by dementia researcher everything you need in one place register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk